Welcome to the podcast, featuring in-depth interviews with musicians, comedians, and so much more. My guest today, Katie Barbaro, definitely falls into the more category. She is, because she's a comedian and musician, but also a cartoonist, life coach, just an overall smart and extraordinary woman, fits right in on this show. Um, She was valedictorian of her high school, and she went on to get her master's degree in occupational therapy. Um... So, but like many of my other past guests, like Liz Glazer, she felt that kind of creative bug and decided to take a jump into doing some more creative things. So she backed off on the occupational therapy and jumped into stand-up comedy and doing all these other creative things. Um, But besides that, she's also overcome an eating disorder, um, which she talks about in her stand-up and is actually currently working on a cartoon about this experience. And it's funny, uh, before we scheduled this interview, She asked me what the goal of my podcast was, which is a fair question. Um, I never really thought about it, but yeah, I think what I I told her was the goal was to entertain people, uh, but also hopefully inspire them in some way, Uh, whether it be to be more creative or to overcome adversity or, um, you know, just do something amazing and be successful or take chances, whatever it is. So hopefully this episode will achieve those two things and you'll be entertained and possibly inspired and hope you enjoy it. Well, Katie, Barbara, uh, welcome to my Chuck Shoot podcast here. Uh, just introduce kind of what you are, your part-time occasional, uh, or sorry, occupational therapist and life coach, but you also have uh, multiple outlets for your creativity with cartoons, stand-up comedy, songs and a podcast so i don't know if you call yourself like a jack of all trades or a, a jill of all trades i'm not sure what the term is but you do a lot of stuff jack right? or chill <laughs> uh, yes i do thank you for framing it in such a positive light <laughs> <laughs> it's um, cool i wish i had that so much fun. talent it's very fun to be here yeah so you said that it's easier to be yourself around strangers rather than people you know because there's no expectation so this should be really fun for you right because you we're, we're basically strangers this is so much fun for me. Yes, I love the <laughs> magic of the unknown. Like, oh, yeah. what am I going to discover bumping up against this new person? <laughs> yeah, yeah, should be fun. So, yeah, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and things. So, I, I think I've learned some things. You grew up in uh, Glendale, California. You were raised Catholic. Now, I was raised Catholic too. Can you explain to people what uh, Catholic guilt is? Because I think that kind of helps define a lot of uh, who you are, probably who I am as well. But, yeah, that's such a good question because it's something we hear a lot. Right. Um, there's, and so this is interesting, like just to, to make it relatable, even if you don't have Catholic guilt yourself, we all come into this world and like have some sort of conditioning laid on to us just by the nature of what we're, what we experience you sure. know, in our formative years. So um, it's sort of like this, unintentionally brainwashing experience where, you know, it's very well, well intentioned. Um, but if there's not like consciousness shed on it, it can kind of like result in these patterns of behavior that you may not have chosen if you were just like a ball of conscious light that we, you know, were when we were born and still are, but have all of these layers of obscurity around us. Wow. We're really going for it. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. We're going straight for the real stuff. So, yeah, so Catholic guilt is one of those, like, layers of obscurity and the way I experienced it. And I'd love to hear what your perspective is. Um, It's kind of this voice in my head that, like, that that just tells me everything I'm doing is wrong. (laughs) Like, it makes me. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's like, it, it makes me second guess my, like all of my desires, like, mm-hmm. oh God, there must be something wrong with that. If it's, if it's something that's bringing me excitement and joy, mm-hmm. it must be naughty. It must be <laughs> off limits. Yeah, that's not a bad way. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, I mean, I feel like in some like ways, well, it's similar. Yeah. But I, I think in some ways it was good because you have to learn the difference between right and wrong and certain things that, you know, Catholic guilt, you know, you, you should feel guilty if you hurt somebody's feelings or you do something wrong. But yeah, there's, there's those things where you're just like, well, this is just a happy thing. Why is this bad? You know, like, 
why is watching an R-rated movie, why should I feel guilty about that? Or, you know, those kinds of things that it takes a little bit too far with, with Catholic guilt, I think, sometimes. Like, it's like the shame thing where they shame you for, like you said, like getting excited about something that, you know, it's not hurting anybody. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a pretty good description, though. I would say, yeah, what I, I would, I totally agree. And it's almost like, the locus of control is this external source. Instead of you understanding right from wrong based on how it's vibrating in your body, like based on your own internal moral compass and intuition, huh. it, it teaches you to like externalize your power. Huh. So you're looking, you're looking to these higher governing bodies, whether it's the church or your parents or some sort of external way of of thinking um, as your rubric for the rightness or wrongness of something. That's Whereas, so it's not about, yeah, it's not about everything should be, um, I should be able to do like whatever I want and just hedonistically go through the world, like mm -hmm. murdering people that I don't get along with. <laughs> right. <laughs> there is a line to be drawn, but no, that's very insightful. So, but besides like the religion portion of your life, school was also a big thing. And then you did, um, it was interesting, you did comedy, sports, and improv in high school. So you kind of were around the theater kids, but you're also student government valedictorian. So was it hard to coexist with the student government kids and the theater kids? Or were you able to, were they, did there, was there some sort of blending there? Were some kids in both? That is such a thoughtful question. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I guess I always saw myself as a free agent, mm. whether I was in, like, I was part of certain groups, uh, like the theater kids and like student government kids. I was in those groups, but I never really saw myself as having a group, mm. um, which, you know, like coming to think of it now, um, in my life, I would liken it to Brene Brown's concept of belonging to yourself um, that she talks about in her book, Braving the Wilderness. Are you a Brene Brown fan? I don't know. I don't know who that is. She's an author? Oh, amazing. She, Yeah, she is an author, a speaker, and she is a researcher. She researches shame. So she does qualitative research wow. on the human experience. Yeah. Her work was so influential in my life, like very transformative. So she's like a scientist me. then too, or, or like a, like what is her degree in? Good question. Um, she, I mean, she is a researcher. So qualitative research is when you're not necessarily looking at quantitative data. You're looking mm. at qualitative data, which okay. means um, like people telling stories. It's really interesting, oh, okay. actually. I love yeah. I love that kind of research because it's like somebody listening to a series of stories and then coding oh. the information in those stories okay. to distill information and data from it. it gotcha. is amazing. I'll yeah. have to check that. Oh, that's my so. giant list of books to read that I never get to, but... Um, yeah, I would start with the gifts of imperfection. Okay. Yeah. So you, you love reading, you love school. Um, then you end up going to USC for grad school for your undergrad and your grad uh, school. And you got your occupational therapist master's degree. And then you were kind of doing comedy and improv on the side, but then it looks like about, what was it like five years ago, you decided you kind of quit the OT stuff, or at least you kind of moved it to part-time. And then you, did you start doing the comedy? Was that kind of more full-time at that point? Yes. Oh my God. I feel so seen. You like seriously researched my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Yeah. You did a great job. Um, <laughs> yes. Then I, um, I did. Yeah. have this huge wake up call. It was really a paradigm shift where I huh. realized, um, and it came after like a really shocking breakup that ended up just making me face my life in a new way of like huh. looking at, what are the things I've been taking for granted or like what things am I doing because I think I should be doing it, AKA because there's an external locus of power that I'm perceiving like is making the rules and what things am I doing because I want to do them from the deepest part of my soul. 
Right, and, but wasn't there a, yeah. a part of you that's like, well, I really like comedy and improv and all that, but you still got to pay the bills. So how, did you have some sort of plan to like, I, th- I think because you, you didn't just necessarily quit it full time. You just moved it to less part time, right? Or how did you, what was your plan to, or did you not have a plan? Well, good question. Yeah, I, here's another thing that I, I don't know if this is related to my Catholic upbringing or some, some like scarcity beliefs that I have, but I actually am a very good saver. I'm oh. somebody who saves a lot of money and like, I, I but it comes from a fear-based or it used to come from a very hmm. fear-based place where it's like, well, I have to save all of this so that I don't, um, like, but, but it was like, I didn't know what to spend it on. It was almost like I just wasn't attached to my desires enough to like mm. really invest in myself. So it was like this huge aha moment, like, oh, I can actually use the money that I'm saving to support the life that I want. Oh. So it was almost like being my own patron, like being like the the patron of my art and so um but but at the same time yes i did transition to doing occupational therapy on a part-time basis and yeah and ended up finding actually a a a woman that i um started working with here as doing like independent contracting and working with families one-on-one for more intensive periods whereas like normally in occupational therapy i have like 30 kids on my caseload for a full time mm-hmm. um, schedule. But like with this kind of work, I was able to focus on like one or two kids for longer stretches of time, Okay, which I really love. And it supported my, um, you know, writing and doing stand up and doing improv. Yeah. Um, really That's nicely. Great. So then when did you, I know you did uh, comedy and stuff in high school, I think in middle school too, you said, but when did you first get interested in comedy? Like, do you remember, was there certain comedians or funny movies or TV shows that inspired you to, to, to try it? Mm. I always go back. I think the first time I remember just being beside myself in like silly Silly laughter, joy was watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> like, I just found that movie to be so clever and funny, and it just like tickled my all of my senses. And um, yeah, and then I started, I started developing these characters. I had like this British character that <laughs> I would do. Really? Can I get a taste of that? Um, Oh, you wouldn't want that, I don't think. It's just, she's just the queen. Of, her name's Xavier Elliott. August Moore name's Xavier Elliott. And right. I'm the queen of New Jersey. Um, <laughs> okay. My dad was the only person who liked it. My mom and my brother literally wanted to strangle me every time I would go into it. But I was like, hmm. you know what? One time I made dad drool on the kitchen floor doing this. So I was like, hmm. that's all I, that's, that's what I'm living for. <laughs> right. So you started doing that and then you've said, so then you started doing stand up too. And obviously stand up and improv, you said it's different. It's more vulnerable to go on stage and perform material that you, um, that you, you know, where you just basically going without a net. Um, but it does seem like your stand up is pretty natural. Do you rehearse like and work out every line in your stand up, or do you improvise a little bit with stand up as well? I have the most fun when I'm improvising a good portion of it mm-hmm. but yeah it's like I, I the the most helpful thing that anyone's ever said to me was like you know go in completely prepared but then just throw it all away like you know mm. you have like knowing that you have material memorized but then allowing it to just be alive on the motor that you are and you know it's it's if that's one of that's the challenge of of stand up and of any acting really it's like having this scripted pre-planned material but making it feel like it's the first time you've ever said it mm. yeah so yeah because i wonder how that worked because i know you did um you produced a show at the at the place called the lantern in new york uh, city and you performed like four to five times a week so 
did you have to do different stand-up every night? Because I would think a lot of the people would be the same people coming in, so you don't want to be doing the same jokes five times a week, right? Or how does that work? Well, the benefit of New York City is that you're really getting a lot of uh, new audiences all the time. Sure, there are the regulars, but like, you mm. know, people are people come to New York from all over the world. So true. Yeah. It's actually, it's one of the hardest, but also the most like enriching places to do stand up because you really you really find out if your material works with a diverse crowd. Like at the mm. place at the lantern we're talking about, this is a a show I mean, there's there's like three three or four shows a night there. And a big way that we get people to come to them is just standing outside being like, Hey, would you like to come to a free com- oh. comedy show? There's five dollar drinks. Um, what do they call whatever. that? Barking? So, Isn't that what the term is? Barking. From crashing yeah, with Pete Holmes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have been people, um, <laughs> so it it really does like challenge you to perform to people who maybe weren't even planning to come to a comedy oh. show. Like they might not be. It's very humbling. It's maybe too humbling. At <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah, because and so you felt like you kind of plateaued in New York City with the comedy scene. So you moved on. And is that when you moved to LA? Was that the next step? Or was that when you moved to Seattle? I know you went to LA and Seattle, correct? Yes. But I spent about nine, nine months traveling internationally. Right. Yeah. Um, before that. So I, yeah, I was feeling a bit, yeah, just like I wasn't growing. Santa wasn't the thing that was like stretching me in the way that it had been when I first started like three years prior. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, and I was, you know, I was actually working with a life coach at the time who helped me identify, and this like goes back to what we were talking about before with like our internal versus external locus of control and like what, what, she helped me identify what my personal values are. And hmm. from there, it became very apparent to me how. I could be living a life more in line with what my values are, not just the values I think I should have. Gotcha. So yeah. that helped you also the, the traveling. Did you take a break from stand up during that time that you were international or did you stand up over internationally? I would think that would be hard to jump on an open mic in like Germany or something. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and again, like actually doing stand up in New York is good training ground for doing it in really diverse environments because yeah. you're like in New York, you have to play to a really diverse crowd. Like you might get a crowd that's like only Australians or like, you know, there's, there's people from all over the world who come here. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I really did take this trip with the intention of decontextualizing my life, learning and growing in a way where I didn't know how I would learn and grow and just genuinely putting myself in new contexts and environments, much like talking to a stranger, but talking to a world of strangers um, and figuring out what's the most true thing. Like what parts of me are consistent across environments, like are consistent across, you know, um, what still, what still rings true um, no matter where I'm plopped. (laughs) So I really tried not to go into any of my travels with expectations or, you know, real strong agendas unless it was very clear to me what I needed to be doing in that particular place. Um, so to, it's a long way of answering your question. <laughs> I did do, I did do some standup as I traveled. Like actually one of the most fun things ever was doing standup in Iceland. Um, Iceland. Was, Interesting. Iceland. Yes. <laughs> Similar to New York city, the capital of Iceland, Reykjavik is very, you know, popular for tourists, but it's m- much smaller than New York, obviously. Um, the population of the entire, um, the entire island is 300,000 people. And most of them are concentrated in the capital, Reykjavik. And doing stand-up there was so much fun because I was staying in a hostel. And I remember the first night I was, I was booked on a, a show through a friend of a friend from New York, and it was um, so, so great, uh, you know, to just be in that 
community and feel like, oh my gosh, I have, you know, like having this connection there was like so lovely and warm and familiar, warm in Iceland, which is a nice way to feel. Um, and you did the comedy in English? I mean, they, they speak English? Though? It was, yes, yes. Okay. And mostly, mostly tourists came as oh, okay. the audience. There are a few Icelandic people, but it was mostly tourists who were looking to go out and do things. And the best part was I was just staying in this hostel. And I remember the first night I like mentioned to one person offhandedly, like, oh yeah, I'm going to go do a show tonight. And they were like, really? Like, we'll all come. And I just had every night, I had like 20 people um, who like just wanted to come from the hostel. And I felt like a celebrity in this <laughs> tiny little cabin. That like sounds fun. I was like the celebrity of Iceland. Yeah. So freaking fun. And this was the last, I was there for a month and a half and this was the last four days of my trip. And so I just, yeah, I felt so alive and vibrant and like in my element and mm. so much fun. And then I went, I got on a flight to fly to London the next day and in the airport, a couple was like, Oh my gosh, you're the, I was playing the guitar. They're like, you're, are you the music, musician? I was like, Oh yes. I got recognized by someone from the night, a couple of nights before, like mm. what? And this other city at the airport. Um, and then, as I'm sitting on the plane to go to London, another couple sits down next to me and it's like, oh my gosh, you're the comedian. And it was a different couple that recognized me. I have never felt this famous in my entire life. Like, <laughs> that is funny. I in Iceland being, of all places. Yeah. In Iceland. Well, because yeah. like, you know, in New York, it's, it's easy to be, you're, you're pretty much a small fish in a big pond. Sure. But like yeah. you come to New York to be in the big pond, but you go to Iceland and it is the tiniest pond you've ever seen. And mm -hmm. you're just like, well, here I am swimming along big fish. So how did that, um, and then you did end up living in LA and Seattle and did comedy there. How, how does the comedy scene in LA and Seattle differ from New York city? I mean, cause those are pretty big cities too, though. Not as big as New York, but. Yeah. It's interesting. In LA, the big difference is um, it's it's harder to do as much as you can do in New York. Like in New York, you can go to if you want to, and a lot of people do. I'm not one of these people, but you can do just like several three mics a night easily, um, mostly by walking. Like everything in the city yeah. is so condensed and like. Yeah, you can just walk around the corner, be like, "Cool, I'm signing up for that." And like a half hour later, signing up for another one. You can like really. It's very conducive to just go, 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 do, do, do. Um, but these are all open mics, right? Like you don't get paid for the ones where you just show up, right? No, and sometimes yeah. you are the one paying for oh, stage geez. time if you're yeah. doing open mics. Or like you said, you have to bark and get people to come in, and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And then. Um, yeah, but you can also do a lot of different spots in New York. Like you can really, it sounds like you can, well. yeah, you can really get a lot of practice is what you're saying. Like you can go out there and do three in a night and really get your set down faster than if you can only do it once or twice a week, right? Yeah, and I think with, with LA, the biggest thing is like everything is so spread out in LA and mm. it's hard to get from place to place. So it's a le it's less like I'll just go around the corner and do another mic. It's like oh. okay, I'll go to Santa Monica, like across town, and hope it's not rush hour. And maybe I'll get to two mics, but you're just like fatigued. Yeah, no, because um, the traffic there is so rough, and they don't have public transportation. So you can't take the subway so either. Yeah. But Seattle, I mean, I'm from Seattle. I don't think we have a lot of comedy clubs there, so th that must have been a little bit harder trying to find places to perform, right? Yeah, you know, I think there's probably been an increase, mm -hmm. it seems, because for me, it seems like it's a nice, happy medium between okay. um, LA and and New York. Um, but, you know, when I was there, I wasn't really focusing on comedy as much, but I have a really good friend, a best friend, you could say, um, Helen Wilby, who you should look up if you're listening to this. Her okay. Instagram is How the Helen. She's She's wonderful. Actually, you would have so much fun interviewing her. She's okay. living and she lives in Seattle. It's so fun that you're from Seattle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, actually, she could give you a, a lot better information about yeah. the Seattle scene because she's really like, it's so cool. She just moved there in 
at the end of July and has really like started from scratch. She was from Pittsburgh. And so going from, you know, those two, it's cool because they're both big cities, but they're, mm. you know, slightly, I don't know, maybe, maybe just like not quite as big as New York. And right. No, like yeah. Nothing is. Yeah, comedy thing. Yeah, because I just remember when I was living in Seattle, I mean, there was only like two comedy clubs. There was a comedy underground and uh, Giggles. I think Giggles is out of business. Or, or I guess there was also Laughs, which used to, I used to see comedians. And it was Laughs was this comedy club inside a hotel. But then they moved. I think they got one in Kirkland. So, yeah. But but then last time I went back, uh, my brother took me to this like pizza place where they were doing comedy. So, I think it's kind of getting that thing like New York has where they do comedy, yeah. not just in comedy clubs, but also like a restaurant or bar will have a comedy night. And then... That is that hard to do it. It's got to be harder to do it in those kinds of places, right? Because sometimes people are not really expecting it, or not, you know, the 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 venue is not really set up for comedy, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> one of those semi ambush comedy shows. Yeah, where you're like, okay, <laughs> and it's so good for just practicing mm. being in the moment. Yeah, like you you have to work with what is right. What's going on there? So besides your, um, yeah. sorry, no, go on. You had more? Oh, no. I, well, I was going to say, just back when you mentioned Comedy Undergrad, I got to go um, see a show there. Oh. Fantastic. Actually, yeah, Liz, great I place. saw Liz, Liz Glazer, who I think you interviewed. Yes, I on did. Your podcast. Yeah. She's yeah, got I a got great story. Oh, isn't she? Yeah, I know. It's Liz similar to yours, how she kind of, she was, she was a law professor and then quit and she quit everything and then she just does comedy full-time now so yeah I, i'm always inspired i think that stuff is very inspiring when people just you know quit and because they can always go back and and do those things later if the comedy doesn't work out but it's it's cool when people just take a chance and say you know i'm gonna follow my dream and try to do this and i think that's great yeah i yeah definitely so definitely. besides liz and uh and your friend helen is there other comedian because you've been in all three you've been in uh, three different scenes in seattle la and new york is there other comedians that maybe are not like nationally known but you think are really great like maybe on the brink of making it Bes besides yourself of course <laughs> thank you although it's interesting you know we talked about being a jill of all trades i feel like the 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 place that I'm putting my energy is kind of shifting from stand-up to like other outlets but it doesn't change the fact that that's still part of my makeup right right um yeah. yeah um so many like yeah there's so many it's, it's amazing actually because i left new york um and there's so many incredible comedians and friends of mine and it's, it's amazing to see them really leveling up in the game from like just their dedication showing up every day you know it's really these things are just about taking a step at a time. It's not about like, oh God, I'm not good enough because I haven't been on like Fallon yet. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's just about showing up every day and asking what is the next right action for me on my path? Like what is, what is my job for just, just for today, just for my next step. And so it's, it's very cool to like come back. It's cool. And also a little, you know, I, I'm, getting like you know the, it's so tempting to compare myself to other people because sure. i'm like oh i've been checked out of this scene for a year and obviously like yeah like if i if i had been here taking these steps towards this goal i'd be in a different place towards this goal but like mm. i have to like acknowledge that my my goals are shifting and sure. so my steps are shifting yeah you've got but, so yeah, many <laughs> you got so many things that, and we were, I want to get to the cartoons and your music and your life coaching, but I did have one more question about your standup. Um, one of the yeah. things that I saw you a bit that I saw you do that was really funny. Um, it was a bad first date that you had and you went on, it was a first date. Mm, oh. And is this, so is this a true story? Like you went on a date with this guy and he just, he was like, I guess he kind of sounds like he was coming on pretty strong. Like he was head over heels and he, so he told you, he's like, I'm going to delete my uh, Tinder app, right? Like in the, in the middle of the date. And then you're, you told him, you're like, you're coming on a little strong. I think we need uh, you know, a little bit of time apart from each other. And so you said, I'll, you know, he said, I'll, t I'll call you in a month. And then he sent you flowers with a countdown. Is, is this all true? Or is this like embellished for the standup or. No, this is, these are 
just true events that <laughs> happened. And it also, I mentioned, it's so fun. This was, and that was one of my first uh, stand-up bits that I wrote, actually. Oh, I think it was happened, good. Oh, thank you. This, this happened right after that, that really transformational breakup that I told you about. Okay. Like, where I was for the first time in my life, like actually dating, right? Like I was like, okay, yeah. this is a, a date. And in fact, that's what spurred all of this was me telling him that, you know, he invited me over for, for dinner at his place. And I was like, I realized I was, you know, out of college. Um, the boyfriend I'd been with for like almost five years was someone I had met in college. And just um, the way that we started dating was we kind of like made out first, right? And then we we're like, oh, we like each other. Let's actually date. So I realized that like I had never been on a date with somebody without having already made out with them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gotcha. So I I realized, and of course, oversharing mentioned it on the date that I was like, "Hey, uh, wait!" I was like, "Wait!" I, but I wanted to clarify first. Of course, I was like, wait, "Is this a date?" Just to, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then he said. It is if you want it to be. And okay. then I was like, okay, well, here's my reason in sharing this. I was like, this is a fun fact, but this is my first date that I haven't already, you know, made out with the person. And then he said, oh, in that case, this is not a date, but I would love to take you on a date. He was like, I... It, I, if I took you on it, like, this is not a date, but I want to take you on a date. Like, I'll come pick you up. We're going to go somewhere really nice. Like, I really want to take you on a date. I was like, oh, my God. Uh, okay. It was kind <laughs> of like, it, I was just like, I am not ready for this. This has been, like, two weeks since my <laughs> traumatic breakup. Yeah. And and he's just like, oh, my God. I've, he, it was like he had found virgin blood or something. That was just like, oh, she's never been on a date. I can't wait to just open up the world. Oh. To her. Like, I'm not. It was very okay. interesting. So he really wanted so, to impress yeah. you. But it sounds like he scared you yeah. a little bit. A little come in, came on a little too strong. Absolutely. Yeah. I literally sent flowers saying 29 days dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, that has never... I, I, how could how could somebody be less attractive? <laughs> but so, do, well, how does that work? Because I feel like there's a fine line between, like, there's a comedian um, that does a bit about that, like how guys act in romantic comedies. Like, if if people acted like that in real life, girls would be creeped out. Like, if some guy was showed up and was like, "I want you, I, I need you in my life, I'm nothing without you," like they would be like, kind of having your reaction with that guy. Like, uh, this is coming on a little too. Str-. But in the movies, it's like it's it almost like they glamorize that in a way. So, is there sometimes where you do want the guy to come on strong? I mean, maybe if you've already had a relationship with him or something. Right. Yeah. There's this. I feel like romantic comedies are just like perpetuating our tendency to enter into codependent relationships and it's (laughs) disgusting interesting like uh, yeah this is i haven't really you know postulated this theory but i i think it's true hearing you say that because like those things if those things work on you you're actually feeding into a really subconscious dynamic of neediness and needing the other person to complete you and validate you, which never results in a healthy relationship unless you both wake up from that illusion that you're under. Because, yeah, there's just a real lack of, like, positive models of open communication in pop culture and the media. Like, and not the media, but the, you know, just like, general entertainment mm-hmm. usually yeah yeah perpetuates these models of like unrealistic and uh, like very toxic and unhealthy relationship dynamics um and doesn't actually depict what it looks like to like communicate authentically and like right not play games and for right? some because people yeah that's yeah. the only models they have if their parents are divorced or whatever they might not see a healthy relationship or what that looks like so they just watch tv and they think that's what it's supposed to be like. Yeah, or yeah, or they watch the what they really do is they also watch their parents' codependent relationship and they're like, Well, that's how relationships work. Ah, like true. most most relationships that are operating under the illusion of drama, it's the same thing as the illusion of Catholic guilt or the any any time there's like an overlay of some sort of like 
identification with these roles that we're playing. Like obviously in our lives, like we do play certain roles, like the, the cashier and the person checking out at the grocery store, right? Like, Oh, Mm -hmm. we're these two separate roles. But if we take ourselves out of that situation and just like look into each other's eyes, like we're just two human beings, right? Right. We're just two spirits inside of bodies, you know, um, or the same spirit inside of two different bodies. And yeah. Yeah. Well, the same is true for relationships, but we're playing out. Yeah. We're, 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 um, are we cutting out? Is this going to be bad and annoying no, for you? I hope not. I hope okay. we're not cutting out. Okay. Um, yeah, so we got off on a little bit of a tangent. But no, I do want to mm-hmm. talk about um, some of these other yeah. things that you do besides comedy. You do cartoons. So talk about uh, your cartoons that you make. Like, did you take classes or did you just self-taught that? And how long have you been doing that? Is, is that kind of one of the things that you're focusing on a lot right now? Or is that something that's still just a little hobby? Oh, that's thanks for that question. Um I am focusing a lot on it right now, specifically, actually, I'm working on um, a cartoon-based book that's actually, wow. yeah, I'm, I'm so, that's exciting. I'm really excited about this. Yes, right now that this project is my boyfriend, like this is my, <laughs> <laughs> this is my main squeeze. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm using this as like a device to both tell my story of recovery from an eating disorder, but also, but in this way that's geared towards helping people awaken from the cult of diet culture. So, you know, diet culture is another one of these like unconscious conditioning patterns that's kind of systematically um, influences people, especially in the West, you know, like just fat phobia and, weight loss is so normalized and um, part of our culture that it's hard to um, get to the truth of who you are beyond those narratives. And for me, like that's such an integral part of my story. Like I used to have, um, I used to really be obsessive around like counting calories and over exercising and just like trying to, calculate what I needed to do to make my body look a certain way. Um, And then eventually I also developed bulimia, which was like, I'm actually grateful for in hindsight because it was a flag red enough to get my attention of like, Oh, this isn't, this actually isn't normal. Whereas everything else I could kind of justify is like, everyone does this. Like everybody hates themselves and counts calories and thinks their body should change. Like, and could literally, especially living in LA, like yeah, everybody does. You can find plenty of people to validate that perspective. Um, so I'm really, really passionate about helping people um, just free themselves, free themselves from that prison mm. and from mm. the, the secrecy too of, having those stories or having your, um, you know, like that's one of the most debilitating parts of having any kind of disordered eating behavior. Even if you don't consider yourself as having an eating disorder, like having a distrustful um, relationship with food or your body is like, it feels really shameful. It feels Mm -hmm. like something you need to hide. It feels like, uh, it's like the same thing of like, I'm doing this wrong. I'm not, I don't feel at home in my body. I don't feel like. Yeah. It was interesting hearing about that. So you kind of developed when in uh, your last year of grad school, you just, you went on a restrictive diet and you you lost 20 pounds and you were just kind of getting obsessive about the numbers and the calories and the macros. And then you had the traumatic breakup and then you also were on some hormonal birth controls. You think it was like the perfect storm and that's kind of how you developed the bulimia and the eating disorder. So how did you finally overcome that? Was it the life coach that helped you with that? or That was definitely um, a part of it. You know, recovery is so multifaceted, right? Like every, um, yeah, like I, I would love to give you a short answer of that. <laughs> but it's like... It's a, um, yeah, it was, it was a while, okay. But finding, but, but, but really finding... Um, I will say there was a huge shift that happened um, that really woke me up 
from going from trying to fix this and take care of it on my own to really surrendering into a a group-based support group, getting the help of a nutritionist, um, just surrendering to other allowing allowing help in it's one of my biggest challenges is accepting help from others asking for help from others Hmm. um sharing yeah like i'm a pretty open book but when it comes to sharing things that i don't feel a sense of security in Hmm. um it really i i often shut down and so it was so liberating for me to like finally feel like I had a space where I could share anything, like any of the messed up thoughts in my head, any of the messed up things I would do around food. It was like, oh, oh, I can be honest about this too. Yeah. And that was a mirror for like being able to be honest about the shadow aspects of my life and my, my mind and like other things that I felt I had to hide from people. Yeah. Because other people in the group have a lot of the same, it kind of normalizes it when other people say, well, I've thought this too. And then you go, oh, okay, I'm not crazy. Like other people have similar thoughts and similar behaviors and things like that, right? 100%. Yeah. So then you are not alone. And then you actually, I mean, you must have got comfortable. I mean, you obviously talk about this now and you even talk about it in your standup. So is that hard to to talk about that stuff in your standup? Because I know like when a musician writes like a very painful song about a breakup or something, and then they have to perform it. It's very difficult. Like, I think I want to say no doubt, like don't speak their song. I think that's about like something with her brother or a breakup or something. It's a very hard song for her to sing, but she has to sing it like every night. Right. Cause that's like one of their biggest hits. So is it, is it hard for you to talk about in your standup or do you feel like it's cathartic in a way? Hmm. Yeah. That's a really good question. I, Hmm. It, the the thing that I actually struggle with the most around talking about it is like feeling I need to feel safe. Like I really need to feel like I'm in a like a safe environment to like really be vulnerable and and um but, but the way that I want to talk about it isn't this way of like dumping on people. It's more like, Oh, let me tell you a story, but we're not going to, I'm not going to leave you. Like, I, I just really want to be sensitive to mm-hmm. people's experience where I'm not sure. leaving them in the darkness of it. Like I, it's so important to bring them back out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's honestly something that I, you know, I haven't done as much in a standup setting because there's just less control over the variables and it is such triggering subject matter that I do want to be really sensitive to people's experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that reason, it's more so my own worries about the way people are going to receive it mm. rather than my discomfort with the material. Because okay. Actually, once I've written the material, it's kind of a strange way of like, I feel detached from it or like, okay. I feel mm. Uh, yeah, like once once the story has been written, the energy gets transformed, mm-hmm. right? Or it's like, oh, okay, great. That like writing it is very cathartic, and then telling it is just like telling any story. Mm-hmm. Where and you know, it's funny. Like this is the Brene Brown episode, apparently, but she um, says this beautiful thing, which is so true. Like when we deny our stories, they they own us or they control us. But when we own our stories, we get to write the ending. And, you know, what that means is like, in being in, in really owning our experience and owning our stories, we get to um, really create the resilience, you know, the resilient aspect of the story. And so it, I found it to be very healing for, for me just mm-hmm. to, hmm. Um, yeah, to, to be very, to be open and authentic and, okay. you know, do people reach out and do, does anyone get mad about it and say, Hey, my sister had an eating disorder or do people, is it the opposite where some people maybe reach out and say, you know, like I I'm struggling with that right now too. I, I could use your help. Yeah. It's way more, way more the latter. Okay. Um, because 
the other thing too is like I feel like there's such a safety in talking about your own experience, right? Like I wouldn't feel comfortable making a joke about about something that I have no experience doing or, or participating in. That's just my own personal. Um, I feel a certain sense of safety when I'm only I'm using my own experience to to write a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's not really like, like, yeah, like, of course your sister had an eating disorder and had a different experience. She's a different human with a different mm-hmm. everything. I'm not saying this is what it's like. I'm saying this is what it's like for me. And for here's what experience. I find yeah. funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so now you follow a thing called intuitive eating. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So intuitive eating is the way that we are designed to eat and the way that we ate when we were babies or maybe that we still eat if we haven't been indoctrinated in diet culture subconsciously or consciously or um you know it's the way that our bodies are designed to eat there's no um it kind of it sounds like it's a a diet (laughs) but it's actually the opposite of a diet okay it's so it's actually using your intuition to guide your food choices rather than that. Again, but my like intuition extra, always wants like yeah. Shake Shack and all the junk food stuff, right? <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, does it? Like, <laughs> so yeah, there's a <laughs> if you have a, if you have the sense that like there's some like aspect of you judging yourself for your food choices, um, there's like, well, so there is like this, there's a book and a lot of non-dietitians or non-diet dietitians and health at every size practitioners who are especially trained in helping to guide people through the process of um, learning how to eat intuitively again. Mm-hmm. And what the process of learning that is actually a lot of unlearning. Hmm. So it's it really, it, it helps you like, one of the first things is to reject any sort of diet mentality. So even if you're not considering yourself to be on a diet, a lot of times we actually have thoughts that are diet based, meaning I should eat that. I shouldn't eat that, you know, so Hmm. having, um, and this goes into Catholic guilt as well, where (laughs) some food is morally superior to others. So, Part of the process is, is in having neutrality around food is actually neutralizing the value of certain food items in your mind where you can look at a carrot and a cupcake and there's no clear moral superior in the moment. You ask yourself internally what it is your body wants. Interesting. And so, so there's yeah, a, a book about this or something? Unlearning. Yes, there is a book called Intuitive Eating. Okay. It's written by two women, I think, Elise, okay, wait, Evelyn Triboli and Elise, something else. They are so wonderful. And there's also, like, there's so many resources around, um, I, I, I feel like so many people um, struggle with this without even realizing it. It's easy to not be conscious of it because it's so normalized in our culture. Right. No, that's true. Yeah. So you really, a podcast yeah. called. Oh, yeah, I was going to just plug a couple of quick things. Sure. Uh, there's a podcast um, by Christy Harrison called Food Psych. Okay. Um, and it's very, she's very prolific. Hmm. She has interviews with amazing people across um, all different disciplines. Um, and her approach is very much anti-diet, health at every size, um, intuitive eating based. Um, so she's a, a dietitian herself. And oh. um, she also just wrote a book called Anti-Diet, um, which is which is out and really, you know, really kind of frames this as a social justice cause because it is like there's a huge amount of discrimination that people in larger bodies face in the medical industry, socially, in, you know, in the workplace, like all across the board. And it's something that, you know, it isn't widely talked about, but like fortunately it's becoming more, it's gaining more and more momentum. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because there's so many, there's the diet industry, but then there's all these documentaries like 
don't eat meat, uh, be a vegan, be a vegetarian or don't eat, uh, carbs. And like, it's like, you never know like what is the, this, I feel like every month there's some new trend that the uh, way that you're supposed to eat paleo or vegan or whole 30 or all these different ways. Yeah. To, and like, they all counter counteract each other for the most part. I mean, I don't, I think most diets will say you can eat lots of fruits and vegetables. I think that's pretty okay for most people. So Probably the processed food is probably not the best, but it again, my intu- my intuition wants to eat those things a lot of times. So, yeah. But so you, besides, you're really into all that self help stuff, and you're doing the life coaching, right? You're are you still doing that on the side as well? I yes, I am, and I'm actually right now really focusing more on that on on my my life coaching practice because like up until now, I've really done mostly. Um, like referral and invitation okay. based. Uh, I have mostly, yeah, which I'm really grateful and, you know, that's great. I feel very fortunate that I've had a lot of Referrals, clients come yeah. in that way, but yeah, I really want to focus more of my energy on coaching. And like, I can just really realize that doing transformational work. And when I say that, I really mean doing it myself and the deeper that I can go in my own experience, you know, the more able I am to hold space for other people as they go through their own transformation. Right. Yeah. It's not really a process of me fixing anybody or healing anybody or helping um, anybody in a way that they aren't helping themselves, but it's just having someone else there to hold space for you and challenge the beliefs that you hold that are holding you back from really reaching your potential. And, you know, Oh, okay. So challenging beliefs, that's kind of the philosophy with your life coaching thing is to kind of help free people to do, to achieve their potential. And you think you feel like it's like the limiting beliefs that hold people back most of the time. That's a big part of it. It's yes. Like, um, it's hard to see through the fog that we are taking as our own perspective. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really about connecting people with their own intuition. Like I was on a call yesterday with a new client and, you know, she, she said, I've never worked with a life coach. Like, I feel like you must be some like amazing guru and I'm so excited to talk with you. And I was like, well, I'm, this isn't about me being a guru. This is actually <laughs> about, <laughs> this is about me helping you find your inner guru because right. you have, Right. If this is um, like any coach that's like out there saying that they have the secrets to success and blah, 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 blah. Like, no, 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 no. We each have these keys inside of us that we can unlock our own treasure chest. Right. We all um, have all right. of the, the tools necessary. Yeah. And, it, um, it, and but having a yeah. coach can ex- accelerate the process. Yeah. And and really. It, and it's so different too. So that's why I, I like that idea because like you said, with the guru, it may, you know, they may see everyone should be doing certain things, but everybody's idea of a perfect life is different. So yeah, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. I think it's kind of helping them unlock right. their own inner guru, guru so they can kind of figure out what's best for them, what they want to do. It sounds like that's kind of what you did with, um, with quitting the occupational therapy and traveling the world and all that. Yes. Yeah, def- definitely, definitely. And it's interesting too because we either it, it's it's actually it's like this the process of of doing this. It's hard. It's hard work. It's and not hard as in painful, but uh, like hard as in it's challenging, right? Like yeah. it's hard to hear that. Like ah, God, I need to change something because it's not right for me, you know. Right. Um, so we can either press news on that sign that's coming from inside of us, or we can be like, oh, dang it, I'm going to go in this direction of discomfort. And once we decide to like actively make that choice, like that's when you're ready to, you know, that's when you're like, okay, I'm going to hire a coach because I just want to be faced. I just want to face this stuff head on. Yeah. When we press news and we ignore it, that's when we ultimately have those kinds of rock bottom experiences that people bounce back from right you know so sometimes people have these huge awakenings from these like life circumstances that have gotten out of control you know and Mm -hmm. then they awaken from them because your soul wants to transform and evolve 
So either you're going to be listening to the direction in which your soul wants to move, or if you're snoozing it and snoozing it and snoozing it, the wake-up call is going to be much more painful and shocking. Right. Wow. Cool. That's exciting. I'm excited for that uh, practice to grow. And then you also, besides the life coaching, all this other stuff you do, you do music. You started singing and, and playing guitar. I also think I heard you play the piano. Is that something that you started more recently or did you were you always musically inclined and now you're just starting to get back into it? Oh, that's, well, I, I was always, that's actually one of the areas that developing my, like, really, truly, it's more about, like, singing. It was something that I was very insecure about. Mm. Um, something that I loved, but it felt like, oh, my God, this is too vulnerable. I was, like, it was this, like, having a, having a singing a, a solo role in a musical in high school, in Footloose the Musical, there was, like, a part of the musical where I had to harmonize with someone else, and mm. I was just scared out of my mind every single night and I never knew how to do it and I just felt like worthless and I've never had as much anxiety as I did those shows like I just remember those two weeks I was just hoping I was just like I can't wait for this to be over I'm never singing again this is horrible it felt so I yeah it was like really really triggering for me and so yeah, when I was kind of on this journey of creative recovery and like really getting curious about like, I did The Artist's Way, which is another book. Have you heard of that book? No, I haven't Cameron? heard of that. No. Oh, amazing. I like, I totally proselytize it. Um, it's amazing. And it's this, it's a 12 chapter book all on how to recover your creativity. And the 12 chapters are meant to be done over the course of 12 weeks, but you can obviously do them at whatever speed you would like, but they're full of these exercises that are meant to get you out of your conscious mind and into your subconscious, like really listen to your inner child, to like the parts of yourself that you are kind of afraid to know what they would say if they could speak, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's all these exercises, like if fear were not an obstacle, I would blank, you know, fill it in 20 times. And I've done the artist way twice and Hmm. both times I did it singing kept coming up so strongly. Oh. The first time, completely blew past. It was like, yeah, well, obviously, I'm not going to do that because, no, that would be abusive to myself if I tried to sing. And then I did the artist way again, and I was like, oh, wow, this is very persistent, and it's going to continue. It was like, I can choose to press news on this, or I can face it head on. And um, I, I faced it by buying myself the cheapest guitar on Amazon, and when I was home alone one day, I was like, all right, I'm going to learn some chords and I'm going to sing myself a song. And it was scary. It was scary to do it. It was yeah. scary to even do it to myself, even to hear my own voice. But yeah, you did it. And it kind of reminds me of um, your podcast, which your podcast called Show Up Messy. And it's kind of about the messy parts of the creative process to just show, cause you're kind of a perfectionist and you're real competitive and overachiever and, you know, valedictorian of your high school, but then with create creativity, sometimes that can hinder things. So you, you kind of just have to, it has to be a little bit messy. Right. And that's, that's sometimes hard for people. Exactly. Yes. Like to make the kind of art that really moves you and moves others it requires the courage to show up when it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you know, that's the stuff that we really connect on or we connect over is like when, when someone's willing to get vulnerable. Yeah. And yeah. That's great. So, well, yeah. I always like to end with a uh, charity. I, I think I uh, hopefully, prepped you for that you have a charity that you are passionate about or that you want to raise awareness for Ooh, i actually didn't <laughs> i didn't prepare a specific uh a specific charity okay. for this but you probably but this is not to make you look bad this is probably me not rereading <laughs> our conversation no and that's all right a note of it but i will say well and it, it, i have i feel like i've already um spread awareness about this um, in our in the episode, but just a couple weeks ago, it was National Eating Disorder Awareness Month. Oh, and, okay. Um, any 
National Eating Disorder Awareness and EDA is I don't even I don't know if there's a charity associated with that, um, but I do know that it's a nonprofit sure. group that yeah so people can I donate would, to that cause I'm for sure I'm positive there's organizations out there yeah <laughs> there's something out there yes, yeah yeah like I will contribute to Weight Watchers yeah like <laughs> no I will I will link up the uh, I always put the links in the notes of my uh, episodes as well as uh, my Instagram and your Instagram if people want to follow us. Um, but you, it sounds like you've done so much already. You've, uh, you know, traveled the world, stand up comedy. You have a master's in occupational therapy. You're a life coach. You do music. You do cartoons. You have a podcast. Um, and then you did mention that your cartoon is going to be kind of the future. Is there anything else that you have on deck that you're working on or learning new skills or anything? Mm, that's a good question. I, I'm, I'm constantly, uh, like I'm go- I'm actually going back to Bali. Bali was one of the places I went last year and I'm really opening myself up to new healing modalities. Like the way that I coach people is really intuitive. So it's, it's very individualized and based more on what the, you know, I, d- I don't like necessarily, um, I really only take on clients that I feel inspired by and like really hmm. challenged by as well. Like, you know, it's important to me to work with people who are making an impact on the world and who have a vision that is, you know, beyond than themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I, I am constantly trying to expand my, uh, my own set, like, you know, move in the direction of my own highest excitement and expansion in order to help other people um, transform and awaken and, you know, just create a ripple effect throughout all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah. To just like broaden and deepen um, my, yeah, like I guess my foray into energy work. It's something that I do use in my sessions now, but that's something that I want to like just get more knowledge and wisdom on <laughs> before okay. I, yeah, to just help, um, you know, help people make changes in their lives even, even more quickly and even more, you know, like a lot of times these things are just like, Oh, Oh, that belief isn't mine. Great. It's gone now. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. sometimes it's as easy as that. Like okay. somebody listening to this might have had an aha moment and it's right. like, all you need is an aha moment that resonates with you to leave an old belief behind. It's safe. It's safe to go out and trust yourself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess one thing that I feel to offer actually is if anybody's listening to this and does resonate with with this in some way, like I would love to offer um, an initial coaching session. Like, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Katie Barb. I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes, like you said. Yeah. And um, I would love to do yeah, I would love to do a session together. And I usually this month I'm actually doing um, I'm doing pay what you can. Wow, um, which is like a nice way, which which you know could be nothing if that's what you're, <laughs> that's what you can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because I, I find that every time I do a coaching session, it makes it it up levels me in some way. Mm-hmm. Like I I benefit from it hmm. uh, just as much as anybody else does. Great. Well, that's awesome. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing what the future holds for you with this. Oh, I'm excited for this cartoon, or it's going to be a book. You said right. Yes, it'll okay. be a cartoon-based book, Awakening from the Cult of Diet Culture. That's great. Okay, well, look forward to that and um, look forward to maybe seeing your stand-up if you're ever in Phoenix or if I'm ever in, uh, where are you now in New York? You're back in New York, right? Right now I am in New York. Okay, yeah, exactly. okay. So if I'm ever in New York, maybe you'll do some stand-up when I'm there. Um, but I would love that. That'd be fun. Chuck, thank you thank you so much for having me. This yeah, thank you for honest, being on the show. Like, so much fun. This is a lot you're, of fun, yeah. You're such an amazing interviewer. I just want to you, <laughs> thank you. Like honestly, the the world is so lucky to have you. Thank like, you. That's wow. That's, so that's one of maybe the greatest compliment I've had in the, maybe ever. So thank you so much let for me, let being me on the show. Let me compliment. Hang okay, on. Okay. Sorry. Let me make Keep it. going. Yes. <laughs> I just think you know I I feel very seen and like the way that you ask questions already starts from such a place of depth that it really allows for the person you're talking to. And I can only speak for myself really, but it allows, <laughs> uh, I felt like I was really invited to go, um, 
yeah, like to discover new parts of myself. And yeah. yeah, like, thank you. Oh, thank you for coming on. That was great. I thought it was really interesting. You have, you're very insightful and I can tell, you know, like it, it makes sense that you do all these different things because your, your mind is so creative and you have all these talents. And I mean, it's really exciting to be able to do all those different kinds of things. So I look forward to see what the future, I mean, who knows where you'll be in five years. You might be doing something totally different too. So it's exciting. Oh, yeah, truly. I don't, I'm not a big five-year plan kind of person. I'm like, well, if I <laughs> live today the way I want to, hopefully yeah. I think in five years I'll feel fine. <laughs> yeah, but it'll, it'll be fun to I'll be, keep following you on Instagram to see where your journey goes because it's like, it, you know, you've traveled the world, like you're, you just continue to grow as a person. So that's exci- it's exciting to see that, you know, as opposed to people that are st- stuck in the same place. And if you feel like you're stuck, then we'll reach out to Katie and she can help you get unstuck. Mm, I love that. I love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Katie, for oh, being on my show. Chuck, thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. Stay in touch. Will do. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. I'm an amazing interviewer, and I didn't even pay her that much to say that. No, thank you to Katie. She's an amazing woman. Uh, make sure you follow her on social media. You can follow me, too, if you're bored. I get lonely sometimes, so I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to write me a review about how amazing an interviewer I am, I I wouldn't hate that either. Otherwise, uh, thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end. Now get out there and make the rest of your day great. Unless you're listening at night, then maybe go to bed and make tomorrow a great day. Take care.